Okay, what we're going to try to do here is to read the psalm, read Psalm 35. We talked about it verse by verse last time. What we want to do, if we have any more questions uh, that you have, or if I didn't explain it fully, I can't remember all that was said about whether or not we could pray these imprecatory prayers. But then we want to get to what we've always tried to get to but didn't get to last week, which was how this psalm speaks of Jesus. So that's where we will spend most of our time tonight. Uh, But let's begin by reading Psalm 35 in the New American Standard Bible. A psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for feet for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong from him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him? Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me... When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or my brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. Never let those, neither let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. They do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They open their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my calls, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha, our desire, and do not let them say we have swallowed him up. 
Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice with favor and at my vindication, who favor my vindication. Let them say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of his servants. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. Okay, thank you for listening as we read the text. Now, I don't remember how much. I know we talked some, uh, about 10 minutes at the end, about whether or not we could pray such prayers today. Did anybody have a question about that that we didn't cover? Was anybody unclear on that and wants us to cover it more? What thoughts did you have? A couple of things I ran across that I thought were interesting are one thing. Imprecatory prayers do not ask God to do anything He's not planning on doing already. I thought that was an interesting statement that I ran across in a commentary by Alan Ross. They don't ask God to do anything that he wasn't planning on doing already. There are some statements about the judgment that God's going to bring which are as direct or more direct than any prayer that's uttered in the Bible calling judgment upon foes. What imprecatory prayers ask is that it come quickly because the psalmist feels like he's losing strength or this person feels like he's losing strength and he's asking God to bring the judgment more quickly. But So I'm assuming everybody's okay with that. If, you, if you're not, you listen to that last podcast I did, which was just on that subject. It was just on the subject, can we pray such prayers today? Not saying it answers every question, but hopefully it will help you. Okay? Now... And I'm going to be dependent on your faults here. Um, what are some ways that this psalm speaks of Jesus? What are some things that we read about and we see in the psalm and we think, yes, that sounds like Christ? David? Yeah. Verse 4, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Okay. Certainly, Jesus had those that were seeking his life and were actually successful in that for yes. a short period of time. And uh, they certainly devised evil against him as well. Okay. Okay, very good. Um, we can talk about these one by one, I guess. 35 verse 4. Be ashamed and humiliated. Now, one of the reasons I pick out these two words, and this is how they are rendered in the New American Standard, hopefully I've spelled them right, 
But these two terms are also used again in verse 26. In verse 26, let them be ashamed and humiliated who rejoice at my distress. So they appear in verse 4 and they appear in verse 26. May those who oppose me be ashamed and humiliated. I also was looking at the Greek translation of Psalm 35. And I was trying to pick out how some of these words are used, particularly as they are connected to the events about the life of Christ. Uh, This particular word, uh, ashamed, is used in Luke chapter 13, verse 17. Now in context... Jesus has healed a woman in the synagogue who has stooped over. and She's been stooped over for 18 years. And Jesus frees her from her bond on the Sabbath day. You remember the synagogue official says there are six days in which you can come and be healed, but not on the Sabbath. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Uh, come to, And again, here's an enemy of Jesus Critical of Jesus acknowledging that a miracle has just been done. And Jesus rebukes him. And he says, which of you has an ox or a donkey and you won't lead him for a drink on the Sabbath? And shouldn't this woman be freed on the Sabbath since she too is a daughter of Abraham? And it says his opponents, I believe the word in the New American Standard is Humiliated, but I believe it's the word that's translated as shame here in this particular text. So it's the same word that's used here. The opponents of Jesus were being humiliated. They were being shamed. Also, this is a word that's used. The negative is used when the Bible talks about may the one who puts their trust in Christ May he never be ashamed. You see that in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Romans 10, verse 11, and in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. May those who put their trust in you not be ashamed. Those who oppose Jesus, they will be put to shame. They will be humiliated. But those who do not Those who put their trust in Him will not be put to shame. Verse 4 in in, um, my version is dishonored. Is that the same? Okay, I have in the New American Standard, let them be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. And I don't know if you have it at the same point. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying. Okay. But, but, B and B is humiliated. Hum, yeah, it's in the latter part of the sentence. It says, let them be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. So yes, the words are not found back to back. But again, the difference between what those words mean sometimes isn't that great. Uh, so they could almost be used interchangeably with each other. Brad? 26 was the one that I had picked up in that psalm, and it made me think of what happens when they are ashamed and humiliated. I would thought of Acts 2, of if, if 37. It's like they were cut to the heart yes. and said, what shall we do? I mean, 
Yes. That ashamed and humiliated lays open the necessity for God. Yes. And so it's not just, yeah, they they need to be humbled. The humility yeah. <laughs> brings about repentance too. For, yes. So it, it's part of that. For some it brings repentance. Yes. For others, you know, it doesn't. They continue yes. to resist. But like, like you're stating, like Brad is stating, for some of it does bring repentance. I, I, I love the statement. This is only in the Gospel of Luke. But when they are watching Jesus die, and after he dies, the centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. But the next verse, this is Luke 23, 48, all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breast. Beating their breast. Now, beating someone's breast in the Bible... Is only mentioned a couple of times. It's only a couple of times. But what's usually the context when someone is beating their breast? Humility would be one. They're grieving over their wrong. You know, like you see it in Luke 18, verse 13. This man was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Excuse me. Sinner. Sinner. But the point I'm trying to make in Luke 23, verse 48, some of these people observing all of this right then seem to come to the same conclusion the centurion comes to, and they recognize they have done something wrong. And they would be ready for that message on the day of Pentecost that Peter preaches at this Jesus that you've crucified. God has made both Lord and Christ. So we'll make several references perhaps to Acts 2 tonight. I have it down in some notes. What other things do you see in Psalm 35 that that speak of Christ? Bob? Well, verse 7. For okay. without cause they hid their net from me, without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Okay, you uh, see. The continual acts of, of the Jews regarding Christ. The more he became exposed, uh, the more they pursued him. Without, without cause. Without cause. Um, particularly, you see that phrase twice in verse 7, and you see it in verse 9. Look at what John fifteen twenty five says. John fifteen twenty five. First one there, read it. John fifteen twenty five. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Okay, they hated me without a cause. Now that is either quoting from this psalm. Or it is quoting, there's a similar statement made in Psalm 69, verse 4. And it may be that both of them are being quoted. It could be that both of them are being quoted. Psalm 69, by the way, also uh, closely tied to the cross. Psalm 69 also um, is has an imprecatory, a significant imprecatory section. One writer made this observation. Uh, Jesus used this psalm. In contrast to this, modern commentaries are routinely uncomfortable with this psalm. One comment, it is clear that the attitude in Psalm 35 is not identical with Christian ideals. But on the other hand, he says, 
the psalmist lived in a pre-Christian era. This is a writer's commentary. Again, Golden Gate's commentary. Strangely, Jesus apparently was not embarrassed by this psalm and gave no hint of seeing himself as having superseded it. He's not embarrassed by quoting it. But as Bob said, they persecuted me without cause. Uh, that's um, that is also there, and um, and we tied in as well Acts two to our discussion uh, of verse twenty six with verse um, verse four. What else, David? Verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. Yeah, we can't miss that one. And I'm sure that that many of you saw that and maybe thought it's so obvious you don't need to say it. But malicious witnesses rise up. And speak against me. Malicious witnesses rise up. And certainly that was the experience of Jesus. And he experienced, he was a victim of their malicious witness. Uh, you see this, for example, in Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61, as false witnesses come forward and they're making charges against him. Uh, you also see this in Mark chapter 14. Verses 55-59 Those are some of the passages where you see that idea. Malicious witnesses rise up against Him. Let's stay right now in that section of verses. uh, About verses 11-15. There are other things other places. But what are some other things you see in these verses that also speak of Christ. This might be a little obtuse, but 13, as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled myself, my soul was fasting, my prayer kept returning to my bosom. The idea, especially point in 13, was when Christ was on the cross suffering by the hands of these people, he was he was saying, Father, forgive them. Not oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's so many points of connection right there. Let's go to verse 13 in just a moment. Hang on to that thought, Bob. We'll come right back to it. Look first at verse 12 where he says, they repaid me they repaid me evil for good. Now, the psalmist could say this. A lot of people in human history could say this. Maybe sometimes some of the people in life you've helped the most have been the ones that have turned out to do you damage. But could anybody say that? Like Jesus could say that. That they repaid me evil for good. I love Peter's sermon about the life of Christ at the house of Cornelius. And one of the things he said, he he says in Acts 10 verse 38, that Jesus went about doing good 
and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He went about doing good. This is how he lived and how he is treated is he is repaid evil for good. Perfect goodness comes into our world and not only was he rejected, he was murdered. Not only was he murdered, but he was murdered in the most grotesque and horrible way by crucifixion. So malicious witnesses rose against him. They repaid him evil for good. And yet in contrast to this, like Bob was stating just a moment ago, in contrast to this, he deeply grieved for them and he cared for them. As for them, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. Now, we could pick out a whole lot of things in this text. But do you know that the word that was used for humble here, the word that was used for humble here in verse 13 in the New American Standard is the same word that is used in the New Testament in Philippians 2 and verse 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Although in the form of God, uh, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was found in fashion as a man, and he humbled himself. To death, even death on the cross. It is quite a statement that David makes in this psalm. It is a statement that's further than I've ever gone, uh, lamenting for my friends, but to humble yourselves with fasting and, and sackcloth, that, that is an extreme sacrifice, but it pales the sight of how he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. So what Bob said a moment ago, very powerful to see how Jesus fulfilled this. And he says, I went about as though it were my friend or brother, and I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. Jesus was mourning. Jesus was grieving. Do you remember how in Matthew chapter 23 is also recorded in Luke chapter 11? How Jesus... Excuse me, it's Luke 13. Jesus mourns over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem that stones the prophets, uh, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I would gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. There are three times in the life of Christ where it seems that he is pictured as crying. What would be the other two? Lazarus' death. Lazarus' death, tomb of Lazarus, John 11. And then probably, we don't really read this one in the Gospels, but you, you know what the other one is? Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh offered up strong crying and tears, probably a reference to the garden. So he does it in the garden, 
also at the tomb of Lazarus, but but also when he comes to the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verses 41-44, he wept over the city. They are going to celebrate at his rejection. He is grieving that they are being rejected by God. They are rejecting Him and they're being rejected by God. And those are some thoughts that hit me in those verses. And the next passage, it says, they rejoiced at my stumbling. At my stumbling, they rejoiced. It is always a sad picture. It is a sad picture to see a person who truly grieves over another and views them as a dear friend and others rejoice at their calamity. That's a sad, sad picture. But he says, at my stumbling, they rejoiced. Now, the passage that I found in the New Testament that used that word does not specifically relate to Jesus. But it's very connected. Revelation 11. Do you remember in Revelation 11 those two witnesses that are, they sound much like Moses and Elijah when you read about them in the text of Revelation 11 with some of the things that they're able to do. They're able to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall. Uh, they have power over the water to turn them into blood. And that sounds a lot like Moses and Elijah that we're dealing with. But when these two uh, witnesses are put to death, look at verse 10, Revelation 11 verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now it is a short-lived rejoicing because after three and a half days the breath of life comes back into them in verse 11. But these prophets are obviously meant to indicate here, prophets who were loyal to God, who were speaking the message of God, who were faithful to God, and when they fall, the earth was celebrating, rejoicing, and they were sending gifts to one another. And Jesus experiences all of this in Psalm 50. 35.15 again, it says, They gathered themselves together. They gathered themselves together. People are all gathered together, talking, looking for a way to trap him. And we find this language used often of Jesus. In the last week, when the scribes and the Pharisees were coming to ask Him questions, they gathered together and they came and asked Him a question. In Matthew 22, in verse 34, in verse 41. But I want to tell you the supreme example I'm going to look at with this is in Acts 4. Acts 4. I don't 
we're talking here, the passages I'm writing on the board are some of those passages that are using the exact, this, these are the exact words. This is a concept that I'm connecting. But I want you to see that the New Testament used the same words the Greek Old Testament used. Now here, the passage is Acts 4, verses 26 and 27. And in this prayer, the early Christians are reviewing all that had happened with Jesus. And in verse 25, the text starts, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So he's quoting Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Now what verse 27 does, he talks about the events that happened with Jesus and shows how these very words were fulfilled in what happened to him. In verse 27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, all of them gather together in conspiracy against Jesus. David knew what that feeling was like when a group of people are talking in a room and he knows they're talking about his demise, trying to destroy him. He knew that. Nobody knew that. On a deeper level than Jesus knew that. And the most powerful people in the world, the most powerful people in that part of the world, are conspiring together against Him. And notice the way He mentions Gentiles and Jews and Pilate and Herod. It's like all the world is against Him. If anybody ever lived, Psalm 35, Jesus lived, Psalm 35. I want to give you some chance any more that you have I've got some more we might as well keep going okay (laughs) no I mean in the verse okay this is not the same but I couldn't help but think of Paul in Romans 9 and verse 2 he wished that I must himself be a curse separated from Christ for the sake of his brethren not not the same point that you're making about Jesus, <clears throat> but uh, yeah. uh, he was being maligned. He, he yes, and he deeply loved his brethren and wanted desperately for them to be saved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yes, let's go down to verse seventeen. <coughs> You'll skip the slandering part of well, the, the fifteen. Well, this is the this is the trouble. The Greek translation is a little bit different. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back, John. <laughs> if you beg me, if you beg me, I'll go back through all these verses. Okay. <laughs> but but I will. Say, the reason I was originally skipping that um, is because. The, the Greek translation is not exactly as the same as the Hebrew 
translation here. And what, this is what the Greek, Greek translation had in verse 16. It says, they tempted me or tested me. And the word in 35.16, it's translated tempting or testing. Again, we're talking about the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament first written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek the time of Jesus. But that is the word that is used for them testing Jesus and asking for a sign from heaven in Matthew 16 in verse 1. It is the term used for how they tested Him in Matthew 19.3 and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? It's the same word that they are testing Him. Or He says, Why are you testing Me, you hypocrites? When they, when they say, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Or they are testing Him when they ask Him what is the first and greatest commandment. The same word that's used there is used in the Greek translation. So again, Jesus experienced that. Another word that's used in verse 16 in the Greek translation is a word that basically means to hold in derision. To hold in derision. And it is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. Twice in the New Testament. And in both places it's used. It is used of Jesus. It is used in Luke 16 verse 14. When the Bible tells us when Jesus had told the parable of the of the of the servant, um, it's called the parable of the um, unprofitable. No, it's not unprofitable servant, but it's the servant whose manager is going to put him out of the job, and he says to one, "Go and pay me eighty percent of your bill," and one pays fifty percent of the bill. What's that parable called? Parable of the wicked servant. We'll we'll just call it wicked servant. I think there's another fancier name than wicked. But uh, but uh, that's but they after he told that parable, the Bible says the Pharisees were scoffing because they were lovers of money. And it's also used in Luke twenty three thirty five when he's on the cross. They're scoffing at him. Would anybody know that Greek word? (laughs) I I thought, you know, somebody may. Uh, Would anybody know that? Because it's a pretty important word. Um, mono means one or only. Uh, genes, uh does it mean begotten? You know, sometimes it does. So it's sometimes translated only begotten. Sometimes it's translated only begotten. Sometimes it's just translated only. And that's probably the best translation. For example, that's the word used, Jairus' only daughter. Or the widow of Nain's only son. But more importantly, 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. It's used in John 1.18. It's used in John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. In John 3.18 it is used. It is also used in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, I believe it is verse 9. 1 John 4, yes, 1 John 4 verse 9. I think that word is only used in the New Testament like 9 to 11 times. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact number. It's somewhere around that number, 9 to 11. And five of them are of Jesus. And the point is when David is praying this prayer, rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. The word he uses for only was a word that was used in the Greek translation to refer to Jesus. as the only son. Now, um, One or two, just I'm going to mention that I missed. Um, we missed in 35, verse 5 and 6, the phrase, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. A couple of significant places you see that. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 28 as the women are on the way to finish anointing the tomb in Matthew 28 verse 2 an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men the angel of the Lord rolls away the stone at the tomb of Christ the angel of the Lord is also pictured remember in Acts chapter 12 the angel of the Lord strikes Peter on the side and Peter the night before his execution gets up, the chains fall off, he walks out several gates, thinks it's all a vision until he realizes this is really happening to me. Then the angel of the Lord struck Herod on the side and killed him. The angel of the Lord struck Peter to release him. The angel of the Lord struck Peter to, uh, struck Herod to kill him. And that last passage is Acts 2, Acts 12, verse 23. And I mention that because in this context, the angel of the Lord is pursuing those who mistreat and judge His people. In Psalm 35, verse 25. Psalm 35, verse 25. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha, our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Don't let them say this. Don't let them say that they have swallowed him up. Swallowed up. Did you know the word used in the Greek translation is the word that's used when the Bible says, Oh, death, 
Where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The Bible tells us that death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up. It is also the word used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4. And it's basically the same point that's being made in that passage. Now, uh, if you are not familiar with Isaiah 5, for example, it's Isaiah 5 around verse, I think it's around verse 14. But death is pictured as a giant monster that's swallowing up everyone. Death is a giant monster swallowing everyone. Here, Jesus has swallowed up death. It's kind of like the picture you see on the back of cars sometimes of the Darwin fish being swallowed up by the Jesus fish. And here you have death swallowed up by Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And um, the words that are used... One of the words that's used for rejoicing in in Psalm 35, verse 9, Psalm 35, verse 9, um, the word that's translated rejoice or exult, and then a different word that is used in verse 27. And I forget how it's translated here in the version. Uh, I just wrote the Greek, but didn't write the English. Uh, It may just be translated rejoice here. Again, they're, they're very similar words, but they're different Greek words. But both of these words are used in Acts 2. Acts 2 that... Uh, that we mentioned earlier, uh, as Brad was mentioning that in his discussion, but in Acts 2 verse 26, remember when the Bible talks about when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he talks about it was impossible for death to hold him in his power. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Those words translated was glad. Those words translated was exalted in the New American Standard. Acts 2 verse 26. The same words used in the Septuagint of Psalm 35 and verse 9 and verse 27. When he experiences deliverance, he is going to rejoice. He is going to exalt. And so not only do does Jesus exalt and rejoice in His deliverance, but we all who have seen that deliverance, we rejoice in it as well. And we say, as you see in Acts, uh, or Psalm 35, verse 27, it says, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified. It's the word that Paul used when he said, the Lord will always be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1 in verse 20. It was a, it was a word used by Elizabeth in Luke 1 and verse 46 when she said, my soul exalts 
exalts the Lord. It's the same Greek word, and it could be translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. Sometimes that prayer is called the Magnificat uh, because of that word. The Lord be magnified. The Lord who is bringing about the birth of John, bringing about the birth of Jesus, the Lord who's going to visit this world with this prophet and this the Son of God, and the Lord who's always magnified in our body. Um, okay, how do we pull all this exactly together? I do think it is scriptural to pray prayers asking for judgment upon the wicked. I, I do. And again, if you if you have questions that you want to ask about that afterwards, if you want to check that last podcast and see. But 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 as was mentioned earlier, someone mentioned, Jesus does pray, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. In a sense, Jesus experienced all these wrongs and instead of pronouncing a curse upon us, took the curse upon Himself. Isn't that what Galatians 3.13 says? Christ became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Christ took this curse upon Himself so that in Him we might all find forgiveness. You know, Brad mentioned earlier about people who had originally rejected Christ, maybe among those who were saved. You who have crucified Christ were asking, what must we do? And told, repent and be baptized. And they can magnify the Lord and exalt the Lord. And people who are guilty before Him can magnify Him and praise Him that He has forgiven us. And when the last hour of death approaches, the last hour of life approaches and death is hovering over us, we can rest assured that death is swallowed up in victory. So, I may have left out some things. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I even left out a few things I had on my notes. But I do think you can see that this chapter speaks so fully of Jesus that it would have been hard to cover all we wanted to cover last week in one class. What have I left out, guys? I have I have been thrilled to do this, and Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll pick up again in... Um, Psalm um, 36, Lord willing. But thank you all for being a part of this and, and sharing in this. And uh, Brad will have another few verses of our epic song uh, on Psalm 35 um, in just a moment. But let's have a prayer as we close. Oh Lord our God. As we look at this psalm, we see real evil and real wickedness. We see people 
that oppose the innocent, that rejoice at the fall of people who are kind and compassionate. And God were dismayed and sometimes afraid in the midst of just such a world. But we see you as a God who loves us, as a God who goes to great lengths to save us and experiences a curse so that we might be blessed. We, we don't even know how to completely process that, oh God. We stand in awe of you and all of your mercy. Help us, Lord, to magnify your name, to exalt you. May these psalms give us strength. May they keep us humble on good days. May they sustain us in bad ones. And may they keep our focus on you, our rock, and our Redeemer. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, in Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll continue. Uh, we sang the first uh, song of the uh, three on uh, last week. So as you get these, again, I mentioned last week. You know, some of these psalms that they sang that are you know moderately linked. You know, it it took a while to sing these. These aren't just uh, three verse songs that they had in their hymnal. These are. Uh, so this 28 verse psalm in English turned out to be 21 verses total, you know, and so uh, it's a it was a, a lengthy song that they would have sung. So uh, we're gonna I broke it up into three different songs so that it wasn't just so arduous to keep singing the same tune over and over again. So uh, although this second. Uh, Section uh, is both front and back, and so you've got nine through seventeen on this one, and then we'll uh, stop, and then we'll sing the last four verses. I uh, didn't make a note on, um, so we're singing "When I Survey the Wondrous Cross," Psalm thirty-five, eleven through twenty-three, um, a word that we don't often use. There, um, mean m. I-E-N, I gave the definition down there, just the way a person looks. Um, so, uh, against the men of peaceful being, meaning they look peaceful. Um, so, it's not a word we often use. So, Alright, let's sing, um, starting in verse 9, which is 
verse 11 in the psalm. So when I survey the wondrous cross. I'm going to turn this on. False witnesses against me stood of things I knew not all just me. Peace, peace, peace. 
finish with Psalm 35, 24 through 28 to the tune of Just As I Am. No, judge me in justice, Lord my God, and let them not rejoice at me. I'm assuming next week's. Do you know when we're going to meet the next time? uh, 